Hello and welcome to First Christian Church. I'm very glad you're with us today. As we record this video, it's right now Wednesday morning. The building is abuzz with all sorts of activity, staff and all kinds of people here for Bible study and staff members are doing their job and we're prepping and, and planning on what's gonna take place in worship this coming weekend. You're aware perhaps that we've been spending a long time making a long, slow journey through the book of Matthew in the preaching series right now. We started back in February. It's a number of weeks yet before we come to an end. When we first started, we showed you a video that um, kind of gave you an outline of the first 13 chapters of the book of Matthew. Now we're at this kind of crux, this kind of shift point, this place in the book where, well, to say it this, put it this way, the book changes tone and Matthew's biography of Jesus takes on a whole new approach. And so to help you understand what's coming in the weeks ahead, I wanna direct your attention to the screens. Catch a video with us today that will give you some details of what, uh, what we're gonna look at and what we can even start to see as we look at scripture today. I invite you to watch the screens. The Gospel According to Matthew. The first half of the book of Matthew introduced Jesus as the Messiah from the line of David and as a new authoritative teacher like Moses and also as Emmanuel, which in Hebrew literally means God with us. After Jesus announced and taught about the arrival of God's kingdom and after he brought the kingdom into day-to-day -day life among the people of Israel, we saw that Jesus was accepted by many but rejected by others, especially Israel's religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so the big question is, how is this conflict between Jesus and Israel's leaders going to play itself out? The next section, chapters 14 through 20, explores all the different expectations people have about the Messiah. So Jesus keeps healing sick people, and twice he even miraculously provides food for these huge crowds in the desert. One's made up of Jewish people and the other of non-Jewish people. And this sign is very similar to what Moses did for Israel in the wilderness. All these people are excited about Jesus. They think he's the great prophet, the Messiah, but not the religious leaders. Their view of the Messiah is built on passages like Psalm 2 or Daniel 2, about a victorious Messiah who's going to deliver Israel and defeat the pagan oppressors. From their point of view, Jesus, well, he's a false teacher. He's making blasphemous claims about himself, and so there are stories here about them increasing in their opposition, hatching a plan to kill him. And so in response, Jesus, he withdraws and he begins teaching his closest disciples what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah because it is not what anybody expects. So Jesus asks his disciples, chapter 16, he says, who do you all say that I am? And Peter, he comes up with the right answer, or so it seems. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But then it becomes clear that Peter's thinking about a king who's going to reign victoriously through military powers, what he has in mind. And so Jesus challenges Peter saying, yes, I'm going to become king, but through a different way. And so Jesus starts to teach on themes from the prophet Isaiah, who said that the Messianic king would suffer and die for the sins of his own people. And so Jesus was positioning himself as a Messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant, who would lay down his life for Israel and the nations. Peter and his disciples, they mostly just don't get it. And so Jesus enters into the fourth block of teaching, followed by a series of teachings after that. And these are all about the upside down nature of Jesus' messianic kingdom, which turns upside down all our value systems. 
in the community of the servant king, you gain honor by serving others. And instead of getting revenge, you forgive and do good to your enemies. And in Jesus' kingdom, you gain true wealth by giving your wealth away to the poor. To follow the servant Messiah, you must become a servant yourself. In the next section, we watch the two kingdoms clash, Jesus' kingdom and that of Israel's leaders. Jesus comes to Jerusalem for Passover, riding in on a donkey, and the crowds are hailing him as the Messiah. Jesus immediately marches into the courtyard of the temple and he creates this huge disruption that brings the daily sacrifices to a halt. His actions here speak louder than words. As Israel's king, Jesus was asserting his royal authority over the temple, the place where God and Israel met together. And in Jesus' view, the temple was compromised by the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders. And so here he's challenging their authority and naturally they're deeply offended. And so they try to trap Jesus and shame him in public debate. Of course they fail. And so they end up just determining to have him killed. In response, Jesus delivers his final block of teaching. He first offers this passionate critique of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. He then weeps over Jerusalem and its rejection of God and his kingdom. And then he withdraws with his disciples and he starts telling them what's going to happen. He's going to be executed by these leaders, but in doing so, they're going to create their own demise because of instead of accepting Jesus' way of the peaceful kingdom, they're going to take the road of revolt against Rome. And so Jerusalem and its temple are going to be destroyed. But Jesus says that is not the end of the story. He's going to be vindicated after his death by his resurrection, and one day he'll return to set up his kingdom over all nations. And so in the meanwhile, the disciples need to stay alert and stay committed to just announcing Jesus and his kingdom and spreading that good news. And so with all of that ringing in the disciples' ear, the story comes to its pinnacle. That night, Jesus takes the disciples aside and he celebrates the Passover meal with them. Passover retells the story of Israel's rescue from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And then Jesus takes the bread and the wine from this meal as new symbols showing that his coming death would be a sacrifice that would redeem his people from slavery to sin and evil. After the meal, Jesus is arrested. He's put on trial before the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish leaders, and they reject his claim to be the Messiah. They charge him with blasphemy against God and Jesus is brought before the Roman governor Pilate. He thinks Jesus is innocent, but he gives in to the pressure from the Jewish leaders and he sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. So Jesus is led away by Roman soldiers and then crucified. Now you'll notice right here in this section that just like Matthew did in the opening chapters, he increases the number of references to the Old Testament. He's revealing that Jesus' death was not a tragedy or a failure, Rather, it was the surprising fulfillment of all the old prophetic promises. Jesus came as the servant Messiah, spoken about in Isaiah. He was rejected by his own people, but instead of judging them, he is judged on their behalf, bearing the consequences of their sin. So the crucifixion scene, it comes to a close and Jesus' body is placed in a tomb, but the book ends with a surprising twist in the last chapter. 
The disciples, they discover on Sunday morning that Jesus' tomb is empty. And then all of a sudden, people start seeing Jesus alive from the dead. And the book then concludes with this risen Jesus giving a final teaching of what we call the Great Commission. Jesus says, He's now the true king of the world, and so he sends his disciples out to all nations with the good news that Jesus is Lord, that anyone can join his kingdom by being baptized and following his teachings, and echoing all the way back to his name, Emmanuel, God with us from chapter 1, Jesus' last word in the book to his disciples is this, I will be with you. It's a promise of Jesus' presence until the day he finally returns, and that's the gospel according to Matthew. Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here in both the West and East auditoriums. And uh, we want to thank uh, the, 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 uh, the Bible Project people out in Oregon helped us put that video together, plus the original one that we did a number of weeks ago. And so if you want to see both videos, uh, they are available on the church's website. You can grab a whole sense of the whole book. We thought it was important you to get a big overview. Um, and so we're glad you're with us today, and thanks for um, paying attention to that. For guests, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad you're with us today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 14, where as the video talks about this big shift in the book. So grab your Bible, please. If you don't own a Bible, you'll notice here in the west, there's one in the, uh, in the pew rack in front of you. In the east auditorium, you're folk in there. Uh, there's also some people moving around. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd be honored if you'd take that home as our gift to you today. So... Um, we're step, really, you need to understand what's happened today as we've been making our way through Matthew is there's a shift as we step into what we're looking at today. So to help me prepare for that shift, I've brought my backpack up here. This, I've had this, back, this particular backpack. I've never ha- owned a backpack before I bought this one, but I've, I bought this in 2009. And it's kind of become my office on the go, if you will. I thought you'd like to see a few things that are in it. You're, you're just dying to know what's in my backpack, aren't you? I can tell. <laughs> Like, here's the computer, all right? That, that's in there. I have some other things in here, like, this is my prayer journal. I pray for you. You all need prayer. <laughs> just, just, just say. This is my Bible. Okay, I've got that there. And then and there, are, there are other things that I've, I mean, when you carry a computer, and these days, you've got to carry all kinds of stuff. So somewhere in here, yep, I've got the computer cable, all right? I have, I have... These are all the other kinds of cables that go with everything these days. I mean, like I've got, I got some earphones, and I've got uh, this. This is uh, um, full of converters, you know, when you're trying to plug things in. And then this little dumahickey here. This is what is called officially a dumahickey. Um, this is for if you're somewhere and you need Wi-Fi and it's not available, you can do that. And then, then so when you're traveling, because of late I've been on the road a little bit, and you, you have to have other things like, for example, um, in, down here, I got pens and pencils, and oh, I've got this. This is old school. This is really old school. You all know what this is? This is a canister from a Kodak 35 millimeter film. I mean, these things are worth gold now. You couldn't buy them if you wanted to. You know what's in here? Paper clips and safety pins. Are you, Wayne, you're such a nerd. Why are you carrying? Well, let me tell you. When you do weddings off-site, invariably, you're there in a park, in another, another auditorium of some sort, and somebody will come in and say, the bride's dress is torn, something is torn, does anyone have safety pins? And I am a man set for all things right there. Okay? 
Also, when you're on the road like that, you've got to face all kinds of situations, like if you have to do a wedding in the daytime, there's sunglasses when it's bright. Nothing, says, nothing is cooler than a preacher wearing sunglasses at a wedding, right? Or if you're at a wedding and there's somebody messes up, what do you have? You have a tight stick, all right? You know what's better than one tight stick? Two tight sticks. Why I have two, I have no... Why I have two, I have no idea. Some of you go, wait, wait, you got so much, you've got everything in there but the kitchen. You know what I'm, saying, what I'm saying? Everything but the... I have that just for you this morning. <laughs> See, here's the deal. I think that um, he, we, we carry more stuff than, than we ever used to. I think it's with the advent of fobs and cell phones and, and iPads and all this sort of stuff. You, now you have all, and then you have all the sorts of ID requirements. You could be, be able to get on a plane and not have any ID at all, and you could travel on someone else's ticket. No, you can't do any of that anymore. So in light of that, in light of this modern contemporary problem, there are companies that are coming out with solutions for us, for all the stuff we carry. For example, there's a group called the Scott E. Vest Company. And they make vests and jackets that have like 17,000 different pockets in them. And by the time you put the coat on, you're like this, I imagine, but not, nonetheless. And, but I gotta tell you, my, my most favorite thing that seems to be coming across my, across my computer screen a lot lately is this company that's trying to sell me something called Pick Pocket Proof Adventure Travel Pants. Now, isn't that a great name? Say that seven times in a row, pickpocket-proof adventure travel pants, all right? You can only imagine the kind of, if you could wear your own pickpocket-proof adventure travel pants, you'd have all the pockets you need, and here's how it works. They've got zippers that are collapsed and everything, because apparently, with all the stuff that we're carrying now, there are more opportunities for pickpocket thieves to gain access to your stuff. So now you could wear your, I love the name, Pickpocket-proof adventure travel pants. Look at me, I'm wearing my pickpocket-proof adventure travel pants. Does that mean if I wear these pants, I'm gonna have an adventure, I'm gonna go traveling? If you'd wear them and you don't have an adventure to get your money back, I don't know, but nonetheless. Here's the point of what I'm saying, why I'm telling you all this. Looking at all this stuff and your pickpocket-proof adventure travel pants, I've worked all, long week to, all week long to make certain I could say that, so I'm gonna say it a lot, get ready, okay? If the people we're about to read of in Matthew chapter 14 had had their pickpocket-proof adventure travel pants and, and all the stuff that goes with it, Jesus would not have had to do the miracle he did, it seems to me. You're going, what? Yeah. In our day and time, we'd say we wouldn't need this. But in their day and time, without their pickpocket-proof adventure travel pants, they had to have a miracle. Here it is, Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 13, all right? Read with me, please. When Jesus had heard what happened, what had happened, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 14, John, his cousin, has just been beheaded, has been executed, okay? When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, you know what happens? The disciples see a need. They've got big eyes, they're able to say, hey, Jesus, all these people, there's, there's a lot of people here. We're going to read in a moment, there are 5,000 men plus women and children, okay? It's a lot of people, maybe anywhere as much as 10,000 people perhaps. 
This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to villages, to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now you want to go, okay, why aren't they traveling with their own food? Why? Well, now, we know that the ancients used to have, if you will, little baskets that they would have on the side of their, underneath their, they, they, we, we have modern day ones. We have, what do we have? We have fanny packs. Got one in. I, I sent out word to all the leaders of our church and said, I'm going to be talking about fanny packs this week. Who is nerdy enough to own one? Because I don't have one. And with that, I got some back in the office. Like, for example, look at this one. The owner of this one said, it's leather, Wayne, so it's not nerdy. (laughs) Are you telling me this isn't nerdy just because it's leather? If I had my pickpocket-proof adventure travel pants on, it might not be nerdy, but it's really nerdy if you ask me. But you think this is bad. If you own a fanny pack, don't tell anyone when you leave here today that you own one, okay? If you were to not own that but to own this one, you'd be really styling. Pink with your own water bottle attached. Now that's styling. Right? Y'all are going, I can't believe he's doing that in church. I can't either. I can't believe I'm wearing this. But here you go. This is what they needed in Matthew chapter 14, but they didn't have it. Mind you, if I was in chapter 14, I wouldn't wear this for all the tea in China, but there you go. They didn't know China existed back then. But here we go. So what happens? This is a remote place, the disciples say. Follow along with me. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Their fanny packs are not where their little baskets are empty. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They look around. We know from the Gospel of John that they do an assessment. They find a little boy that has some food left in his basket. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the men to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Somehow the food begins to multiply. He gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked their leftover food gone from one little basket to now they've got 12 baskets left over full of broken pieces. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now this morning, what I want to do for you today is as we think about this, I want to give you some observations about this miracle that's taken place. What I think is probably one of the most phenomenal miracles in all of Scripture. It's one thing to feed, to, uh, if you will, to heal somebody's one person who's blind, but to feed more than 5,000 people in one meal. Here's what I want you to understand. understand. As we look at these observations, it's with this beginning basis of what we're looking at, that feeding 5,000 men plus their women and children, feeding them with five loaves and two fish is a phenomenal miracle beyond comparison. Jesus meets the needs of these people in a dramatic and powerful way, And he does it with very few resources. And so with that understanding then that this is a phenomenal miracle, what can we learn together? What observations? How would we respond to this similar situation? Well, first of all, I want you to note of where this miracle takes place within the context of Scripture because then we'd understand and see that victory and or defeat offer new opportunities for God to accomplish much. 
A lot is accomplished here. 5,000 people or 5,000 men plus their families are fed. But much of what's taking place is, well, let me put it this way. As this event is taking place, there's a lot going on around the story. For example, back in chapter 10, the, the time difference between chapter 10 and chapter 14 is very small. And so there's an event that occurs in chapter 10 that's percolating in the hearts of Jesus' disciples. We looked at it a few weeks ago. It says this in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, that Jesus called his 12 disciples to, them, to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And he sent them out with the following instructions. Don't go among the Gentiles or enter into any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you receive, freely give. In other words, Jesus in chapter 10 says, we're going to send you guys out to see how it goes. And they come back, the scriptural record is, they, they come back with these tremendous reports. They go in Jesus' name, and they see these miracles that he performed flow through them. It's a shift in ministry approach. Someone other than Jesus now can do his work. Jesus' ministry is no longer a one-man approach or one-man endeavor. His followers can emulate his ministry and his power. Mark, when he's talking about these guys going out and coming back, he says, They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, healed them. And the apostles gathered round Jesus and reported all they had done, all they had experienced, all they would taught. They come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, you can't believe this. We went in your name and really powerful stuff happened. And so when they are there, and there's all these people that needing to be fed. They've just experienced this. But even while that's taking place, in the midst of this remarkable victory of the disciples seeing God do really cool things through them, there's also a very dark, horrific events taking, event taking place as well. Matthew chapter 14, in the beginning of the chapter, what do you see? It's a detailed story that we can't unpack today because of time. But it's found there where Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is executed, he's beheaded. And you have these two opposing, if you will, juxtaposing events. You have Jesus' disciples moving into this new powerful ministry. That's a high point, that's victory. And then you have at the same time Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, being beheaded. Victory and disastrous grief. And yet in the midst of the victory, in the midst of the disastrous grief, what happens? God works and all these people get fed. I like it. Because what does it say? Regardless of the high points or the low points of life, and everywhere in between, God shows up. Your life may be really good this week. God's going to show up. Your life might be really bad this week. God's going to show up. It might be victory. It might be disaster. It may be somewhere in between. It may be just, okay, life is mundane. But do you know what, friend? If God can show up at the high points and the low points of life, He's also going to show up in the middle as well. When you've got to go, okay, what are we doing for dinner tonight? We've got all these people to feed. That's not a big project in and of itself. It's not a crisis. It's not great victory that people need to eat, like doing all the miracles. It's not disaster. It's life in the middle. And yet God shows up. Here's another observation from the story, is that big challenges 
have even bigger solutions when God shows up. Think about it. You got 5,000 men plus the ladies and the kids who are hanging along, hanging around. And I like the fact that at the, at the end of this, uh, there are 12 baskets of food left over, almost as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, you know, if you'd done this, you would have brought the food in, but I, I'm providing food for you. I don't know if that's what happened, but it's like they all get one basket apiece. I like it. I've given some thought to the math of the situation. 5,000 men plus, plus their kids and, and their wives. Um, how many is that and how much would it cost to actually feed all those people? When Mark describes the story in another um, gospel, another biography of Jesus, he actually says that the disciples come to Jesus and they say, we, we don't have all, we, we get to send all these people away. And Jesus says, you feed them. And Mark has one of the disciples saying, well, Jesus, it would cost eight months wages to do this. It would take a lot of money. What's eight months wages? If the average annual income, say indicator, putting it low would be say $40,000 or some would make more than that. Some would make less than that, but call it $40,000. Eight months wages then is over $26,000 for one meal. It's a big project. Imagine if you were responsible for this project, it would take weeks to prepare. But friends know this, no matter how large the task, no matter how large the situation that's in front of you this week, no matter even how large the problem, if you will, in your life, in your workplace, at your house, at your school, if you get God engaged, the possibilities are endless. Absolutely. Yeah, it, the project involves tons of money and tons of work, and we have to work eight months to make this happen. Friends, no matter how large the project is, no matter how difficult the task, you get God involved. Big problems bring along big God-driven solutions. Here's why. One final observation for today, and it's significant, that Jesus' followers have a responsibility to meet the needs of the crowds. Did you catch what's happened here? We read that as evening approached, it says, it's, it's in verse, um, verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, uh, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There, there, are no, there are no burrito wagons out here. There's no, there's no food trucks. There's nobody selling cotton candy. Alpha, yeah. There's nothing out here, okay? And uh, it's a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away. Send them to the villages and they can buy themselves some food. I, I mean, it's, isn't it what you and I would do? You'd look at all these people and you go, okay, these people need to eat. We don't have the food. We don't have the eight months' wages to buy food. We have nowhere to buy food. Send them home, Jesus. Send them home. It's a legitimate. They're looking out, if you will, for everyone. Nobody seems to be wearing fanny packs that have got stuff on, you know, food in them. There's no backpacks. But I find it fascinating what Jesus says. In light of the fact that the disciples could recognize the need, Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Wow. Did you catch what's going on there? Up to this point in Matthew, as I've said a couple times today, the ministry has been all Jesus, assisted by his disciples. But now the page is turning. There's a new approach. The disciples come to Jesus saying, look, here's a need. Jesus, you take care of it. 
And Jesus says, yeah, it's a problem, all right. But it's not my problem to solve. It's your problem to work through. Hmm. How does that impact us? How does that impact you? I would suggest, friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you say that you walk with him, you can't just come to the place where you look around and say, okay, there's a problem over there. It's not, I mean, that's great. It's having big eyes and seeing what, with God eyes, how things might be done. But it involves more than just us seeing a problem. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to offer some solutions as well. You've got to say, okay, this is the way in which the followers of Jesus Christ can impact this problem. There's a problem that we discovered here in Decatur a number of years ago. And uh, I want you to learn of what we're doing about it uh, as a congregation. Let me put it this way. There's a law in place in the state stating that um, students of all ages at varying points throughout school have to have before they can enter school, they have to have immunizations, a certain track record, if you will, of immunizations. They have to have physicals at various age levels. And if they don't have that all in play when school starts, they can't go to school. And so the local school district here in Decatur has this policy, that all children must have a physical to be enrolled in school, and that physical has to be current. There are variations to the types of physicals that kids need depending on their age and the grade but you get the idea. If, if a kid shows up at school and they're in the third grade and they haven't had everything that they need to have had done for the third grade in terms of physicals and immunizations, they are denied access to school. And you go, well, shouldn't parents be able to figure that out? Well, you'd think so, but sometimes it, things fall through the cracks a little bit. So we, we learned, for example, that hundreds of students were being denied enrollment at the beginning of each school year. In 2012, for example, 494 students arrived at school here in Decatur and were sent home. 400 of them. 494. Call it 500. So we started Jumpstart to try to address the problem. And what is Jumpstart? Jumpstart is a one-day massive endeavor of our congregation where we say to all the people of the community, if you'd like to get your kids ready for school in terms of physicals, immunizations, um, all the things they need to fill out and have it all ready to go, come by here on this particular Saturday. And what happens is they walk in the door, they're, take, they're given an advocate, somebody from the church who walks with them, and there are all these medical professionals who have donated their services, doctors, dentists, in the past we've had eye doctors and hearing people and all sorts of stuff. And kids, the parents fill out the forms and they walk from one station to the next, to the next, to the next. It's all done in private. There's all appropriate curtains and all that sort of stuff. And they get to the end, and at the end, all those forms are copied, and we give them in a, in a packet to that family, and they say, here's everything you need for school. We make a copy of it all. It goes in a file, and then at the end of the day, we take all those files to the school district and say, here's all the kids who went through, and those kids can be enrolled in school. It's a massive undertaking that requires more than 400 volunteers last year. What's fascinating is that right at half of those people who, get, who volunteer come from outside the life of our church. I love that those volunteers are learning of our congregation's, roles, our congregation's role in the lives of hundreds of children and families. You say hundreds? Absolutely hundreds. Because back when we started, the first year we did this, in light of the problem that we heard about, we got the word out, but not everybody, I don't think everybody believed we were going to do it. And so the first year we had 74 kids come through. Last year we had more than 400 come through. That's a great praise of the Lord. And, and 
we, I've wondered about the economic impact of 400 more plus children coming through that and all those services being provided by the medical community and our church for free. See if you can grab some thinking with this with me. That if a physical was to cost around $100, okay, and a dental exam around $50, that's about $150 per student that, that families are saving. Plus, they get everything in a packet and it's all copied and off they go. So it's not just the dollar value, but it's just the sense of they can go in one place and get everything taken care of. Um, by us giving that help, uh, some of you have given some quick math to that, and you thought, okay, 400 students, how much is that overall? Well, we've learned this, that $150 will cover the cost of a child's breakfast for a whole year to get some cereal and something to drink and, you know, something to send them out the door. So in essence, by saving that family $150, we're hoping that that provides them with a way to feed their kids every morning. But if you do that for 400 kids, you know, at $150 a piece, that's $60,000 that we have put, if you will, back into the life of the community. And um, some of you are going, well, that's great, but is it really making a difference? Well, yeah, it is. I told you that um, in 2012, there were 494 students who were denied enrollment. In other words, that they arrive in school, they don't have all their paperwork, they may not have, and for some of them, it takes weeks then to get it all together, just to get to the doctor and so forth and so on. So here it is, five years later, you know how well we're doing? Last year, the beginning of the 16th year, there were 255 kids that needed to be denied enrollment. We've made a dramatic difference. The word is out. As a matter of fact, I heard there were announcements on the party station last night. Why? What is that? Why? Something or other. The party station. I can't say I listen to it all the time, but I did hear about it. <laughs> Whatever it is. We're, we're, trying, we're trying to reach the needs of young families and young parents. And so I want to say this. Jesus said to his disciples, you see the need. Do you see the need, friends? Do you see the need in our community for God to work through us? Jesus says to his disciples, you see the need. You go feed them. You go feed them and see what God does through you. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the call that you've placed upon our lives and upon our congregation as individuals first, God, to be used by you. That's really cool. To think that, man, if we're followers of Jesus, then it's not that we rely just on Jesus to do all the work, but now he's working through us. And we'd like some big victory parties, God, like, like what the disciples described in, as they went out and they, they said, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. Lord, we'd like to be able to proclaim that boldly and see that kingdom brought into the lives of people. Thank you that we get to do it. What an honor, what a privilege, what a, what a, what a, what a moment of great victory for our congregation, yes, when it comes to Jumpstart, but more importantly, God, what a wonderful opportunity for each of us as individuals to step into your plan for our lives as you work through us. We're not content, God, just to sit back. Instead, O oh Lord, we want to be men and women. We want to be young people who say, God, give us eyes to see the need. All these people are there, the disciples said, and they, they need something to eat. That's great, Lord. But then, beyond just seeing the need, help us to do something about it. Through the work and power of God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit working through us, God, help us to be creative in the days ahead, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.